I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology, and on today's episode of the podcast, I'm sitting with design luminary Michael Young here in our office in Hong Kong. was preparing for all of this, doing a bit of reading, and realised that actually this is the first time that I've interviewed you. Uh, is it? Yeah. In all the years that I've known you, I've never actually interviewed you before. So okay. Well, thank you. There's a first for everything. Um, so in my preparation, I was reading a few interviews and watching a few videos, and a quote of yours popped out which said that you prevent visual pollution, which I really liked, and I wanted to know if that still was the case. Um I don't know where that came from. I think it's just something that's passed down through the industrial design chain. Um, and I guess, yeah, I try to tidy objects up, I guess. Or I, I do my very best. Um, I don't like objects that speak too loudly. I like you know, objects that help support serenity. I think maybe in my younger days, I was probably more, you know, colorful, shall we say, but with age. Um, speaking of age, uh, I, I heard or read that you, you actually went to university as a mature age student, is that right? That's correct, yes, because I didn't have any qualifications and the only way you could get into polytechnic or university was um, waiting until you were 21 and entering as a mature student. Um, so I just sat around and waited until I was 21. Um, but I was kind of interested in music and art I just couldn't get into college because I didn't, I didn't have the required qualifications so that was what I was going to ask what did you do in those intervening years um well I kept trying to pass my exams <laughs> and failing them um I'm a dyslexic so it wasn't really recognized then um I played in bands I moved around the country um I actually started doing a correspondence course in interior design just really? to yeah uh, crazily enough and i was living in in bath or bath as they say where i come from and i used to steal into the university there and just sit quietly in the library and do my stuff and kind of just learn a little bit um so i've never really had a job ever <laughs> Lucky so, you. <laughs> yeah. And so what prompted the switch in, I guess, going from interior design to product design or industrial design? Well, I was really lucky um, because I went to Kingston and they kind of said, look, um, what you need to do is go to the place you were born and do a foundation course. Um, so there was this guy called Charlie um, who was a really cool guy for a guy from Sunderland, you know, obviously he lived in London for a while and, you know, had a different type of personality to the, your average local. And he looked at my drawings and he said, you still don't have the correct qualifications to get in here. But he said, I'm going to get, I'm going to push you through the door because I think you deserve it. Um, and then 
after a year, what I realized is, you know, I, they do everything there. They do fashion, painting, blah. And I just sort of had a more of an affinity to simple shapes than space. And actually, I applied for interior design at Kingston. Um, and there was a guy there called uh, Brian Kernahan, who then sent me within 20 minutes to see a guy called Mick Warren in the furniture and um, industrial design, and, yeah, product and furniture, who just said, do you want a place? Um, and then he said, just show up in September. So I did all of that. Um, and this is the funny part. Like when you get there a week later, you're supposed to bring all of your exam certificates <laughs> to show that. <laughs> <laughs> you've got what you need to get in because I just sort of ticked yes, yes, yes <laughs> um, so it, was, it wasn't easy um, and you know I just avoided the secretary for three years <laughs> nice work uh, but it, so it, it turned out that there was a few other terrorists there exactly the same as me um, but I, I really did it just to have three years to myself with a grant which was like, I think, 600 pounds. Unfortunately, I blew that on the first day. <laughs> I went to Bibendum and bought lobsters and champagne <laughs> and was skint for the next <laughs> year. <laughs> I hope the night was worth it. <laughs> Lunch. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but so you mentioned your drawings. Was that something that you were always doing, like from a child? Did your parents kind of think that there was something a no. little bit exceptional there? or Not really. Um, the sad thing at my school was it was an old school, old fashioned type of school. So they stopped doing music and art. The only things I could do um, when I was 13 years old. So I think, you know, when you are dyslexic and you're basically spending your day daydreaming about everything, um, you just start to look at shapes and colors. And I think that's really built a sort of different type of awareness. Mm. And even without knowing about design, I was always turning furniture upside down and um, just doing stuff. Um, and I guess I was more influenced by music than I was by anything else. But I guess my mum did used to have a, a magazine called World of Interiors at the time. And I discovered Baroque and Rococo. <laughs> and then I think that led me on to discovering people like Nigel Coates and Tom Dixon, who were sort of borrowing from that Baroque and Rococo aesthetic in London, you know, um, and that suddenly, gosh, that's something I might be able to do because it's kind of loose and you do it yourself. Um, so it was, it was a very unconstructed way of um, being creative. I knew I couldn't draw well enough to be Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> you know, my drawings weren't good enough really for fashion. Um, architecture was just like, whoa, there's no way I'm doing something like that. Graphic design looked boring. This just seemed like boys' fun. <laughs> it's quite remarkable then that you actually stuck with formal education. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people like you that might fall through the cracks and just not persist um, because of all of those things that you mentioned. That's well, I um, realised I had a choice of stacking boxes or making a living doing something that I wanted to do because I've only ever done what I want to do, which sounds very, very narcissistic. Um, but, you know, I just really had no choice. It was sort of, if this didn't succeed, everything 
the world was against me ultimately you know at that age and and it was terrifying because i remember you know a lot of my friends they were all getting into college and i was just stuck in this pattern of okay re let's reset your english fail reset your english fail reset your maths fail so i think um you know it does open your imagination up but it doesn't do much for your self-esteem as a person so i remember it was a very very quite whilst i was very free it was also very um quite depressing really at the time not really having the ability to have a direction mm. well lucky for you and for the rest of the world that you persisted and did Thank what you, you did yeah. <laughs> um so you ended up in japan at some stage after education and, and i imagine after working for some time you lived there for a couple of years is that right well what actually happened is i in my after my first year of college um i needed something to do for the summer um and so i met tom dixon and that was a lot was over 33 years ago and he was in the basement where everyone covered in oil and i just said hey have you got any jobs and he said um yeah so can you type and i said i could do anything with one finger and he said so here's the job you've got it um so that was my interview but what actually to cut that story short there's loads of stories in there um he was selling to a japanese entrepreneur and um called yoichi nakamoto and then basically you know i had a different sort of aesthetic because my design was at that time was considered to be closer to uh, oasis or blur or damien hurst or this whole thing that was going on in london so you know my my design work was kind of like called two minute pop songs um and it was a different aesthetic and uh when yoichi saw my work which at the time looked very simple um but it was kind of a revolution in the market at the time um he then get backed me um gave me a wage for the first time in my life and took me to japan and gave me an exhibition and it just after two years of leaving college and it just went crazy there i mean you could not i was in every single magazine my furniture was in every single shop um it was just incredible um and then that started flooding back into europe um so yeah and i always felt very attached to the sign it's kind of sort of the ethereal kind of language of japanese culture and uh, you know i think there was uh uh Muraki Mori Muraki Muraki Mori I loved the fact that she kind of lived in this virtual space at such a time when computer work was so undeveloped and it's kind of where I saw myself really I didn't really live in reality I wasn't designing things that were real I was just d designing things for the imagination and creating little things in bubbles in my head <laughs> It sounds like fun Yeah Um and I read that it was Yuichi that first brought you to Hong Kong is that right for an oh exhibition Oh my god yes my first ever exhibition was in Harbour City um and yeah he got a lot of English designers together Sebastian Byrne Charlotte Pack I think loads of different young mavericks really and I can't even remember what I designed to be honest I think it was a stool of some sort um yeah because he knew there was a little s shop in Soho um owned by Christopher Neville called the study and it was really one of the v 
only, I think Ron Arad had a studio around the corner. You could actually afford to have it, you know, make furniture in Covent Garden there. Um, but he used buying little lights off me and discovered me that way. And um, he had a showroom, you know, I think it was with Patrick Bruce. Um, so that was a long time ago. Yeah, well remembered. Mm, and or researched. Yes, <laughs> hopefully. Um, and so that would have been your first visit to Hong Kong when you y came out. Yeah, so that was probably pretty much my first ever exhibition. So I think okay. it's probably rather fortuitous that I've ended up here. Yeah, it yeah. clearly left quite an impression on you. Well, I came in on the old runway. I don't think I've ever been so terrified in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's going on in here? You can't even see people seeing people's bedroom windows. Yeah, I have to say, I don't think I would have moved to Hong Kong if I had have ever had to fly into that airport. It yeah. sounds like a, an experience and a half. Um, and so how long after that was it that you decided to kind of uproot yourself and, and move here? Um, well, I felt that I couldn't really do what I wanted to do in London anymore. Um, I, I wanted to do more. I think technology was just really starting to take off. I'd been in London so, you know, after seven years, um, I felt I needed to do something more inspiring for myself. Not There's no criticism about what was going on in Europe because design was getting highly developed with Capellini and Magis and Cartel, Suara and Moroni, and it had become a, a thing. Um, so what started to happen is I started to get calls from um, a guy called Demos Chang, who's the great-grandson of Chiang Kai-shek, of all people. I've had quite a journey. <laughs> and um, he invited me to come over and do a few projects in Taiwan. Um, which was really not very de well developed in design, but they did. I'm talking at a time before Apple were really, Apple were doing their, I think the first iPod with Foxconn um, back then. And uh, so I just kept on getting offered these projects because the guy liked my work and he wanted to set a company up. So we set a company up together. Um, but then I started looking at Hong Kong and thinking, wow, this is just insane, this place. You know, the, it was just, it really captured my imagination visually because even though I was dyslexic, so it didn't matter that I couldn't speak the language and I saw all the signs and I was just kind of, this is like, you know, visual information. Um, and being spoiled sometime from time to time, I was actually just sitting in the pool at the peninsula and I looked at the lights and all the brands and I thought of Shenzhen behind and I just thought, it's an absolute no-brainer to try and set an office up here with all the financing here and the manufacturing. And um, so I just decided to take the plunge and uh, got an apartment. Um, I got offered a contract um, to do a project anyway. And I just came and just started to pick away at what was going on. And I think uh, my first interview was with L Decoration at the time. They did an interview and then all of these phone calls kept coming in to do new projects and because of course Shenzhen is not really a furniture based area it was all uh, sort of new technical new technology so it kind of changed and captured my imagination immediately. It must have uh, <coughs> felt a little bit like a new frontier in some ways I mean 
And I, and I think, you know, you also had a vision that perhaps many other designers didn't do. I sort of, in researching and preparing for this, that, you know, so many industrial designers, not just in Europe, but in Australia, I think, tend to stick to where the market is and maybe where the galleries and the collectors are. But you've kind of gone off on your own and attached yourself to industry, which is quite a different approach. Um, yeah, look, I often think, have I made a terrible mistake? Would I be much better off living in Notting Hill? Um, just getting a, you know, going to the park on a Sunday with everything that's familiar. Um, but um, I think the way my mind works, I need a challenge. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of things I could have done differently because as a designer, everything you do is really, a, you know, something you have to learn from. And hindsight is obviously can be not the greatest thing at times. Um, but yeah, I just started learning to apply my sort of shapes and forms to electronics or watches, even, you know, sex toys, all sorts. And it just seemed to, you know, be create this fertile environment where I'd brought my understanding of color, shape, form and concept to objects that hadn't been designed in such a way before. Um, I think at that time, you know, Alessia had a very big influence on China and everything was screaming out <laughs> and I toned it all down. Um, so, yeah, and I think I, you know, I didn't just land in Hong Kong expecting anyone to accept me. I just got along and maybe spread into the bloodstream a little bit. Did your own thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to know what it was about China and the industry there that excited you so much then and, and, and also if it actually still does in the same way now or if, if it excites you still but in a different way. Um, I think at the time what was incredible is that we were starting to get a new way of doing things, listening to music, watching things. So rechargeable batteries, Bluetooth, um, you know, imp inter improved internet. Um, so when that sort of, those things immediately brought new typologies together. So I got involved in something where I designed what was realistically um, the world's first Bluetooth rechargeable speaker set mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. And then I did the second one. And at that time, those sort of objects were, no one knew their value because it was the first time that ever been done. So you would be charging a lot of money for a project like that. Um, and then, of course, new, t new types of wearing a watch and what have you. Um, but I suppose ultimately that's been marginalized now because there's 6,000 design studios in Shenzhen all doing the same thing. Um, and you can't really identify one product from another at the time and, you know, China's become very conscious of competing against price, reducing the quality. So I sort of left that market behind. So, you know, I've been working for local companies like um, KEF, um, you know, doing very high end and associating myself to much more expensive products where um, you actually really buy into something that lasts a lifetime, not six months or a year. Um, now, does it still excite me? I think um, whilst I think what is going on at the moment with uh, coronavirus is horrifying, 
and I think everyone is sort of feeling pretty up and down on a daily basis because things are changing so much for everyone in you know their personal life in their work life in every aspect um but I do think it's reshifting the balance of the way we think about things that's of course created a lot of anxiety in myself because you get used to doing things the same way um but I'm very lucky that I was invited to um art and design direct two very important events in China and that those gave me the opportunity really to question how we do design and what it means and how we sell it and how the whole thing is considered so I think you know out of bad times new things do happen and these are things that I want to try and capture um, no matter how brave I have to try and be because just when you think you just want to wind down and sit on a beach you've got to go okay here's the biggest challenge of my life really yeah that's um i, I was going to get to corona um but you've brought it up at a, at a good time uh it is really interesting i was reading also about how you were working with chinese factories i think it was 2013 and there was an, a, an economic downturn or some kind of a recession um, and, and you were sort of talking about how those factories were kind of, I guess, still moving, so that maybe the rest of the world was not so active, but China um, was using that downturn as, a, as an opportunity to maybe experiment and do other things. And I was curious to know whether you were finding that that was happening again now. I mean, obviously, China is sadly where the virus came from, um, and they've been really badly hit. F factories have been closed for months now, I imagine. So, you know, how, how is this situation different to what you experienced? Was it 2013? Yeah, I think um, the previous situation, the US dollar dropped and a lot of the factories lost export. So they needed new opportunities. So they started inviting me to help set companies up, right it are. Um, I think this time, um, we don't really know what's going to happen to export. So, and also um, the e-commerce um, side of China has upped the game beyond anyone else in the world. And, you know, my optimism lies in the fact that there are 1.4 billion people. Um, and I think if you think about China before this, it's all about being outside, showing your Gucci handbag and your, you know, your Fendi shoes. It's all about outside because no one really... You don't really go home, you eat out. Um, and uh, I think people are now questioning what objects and they have inside now. So I think the uh, this is going to be a really interesting uh, few years that we've got ahead of us. But what I really want to try and do is impress upon the culture in Shenzhen that everything you design has an impact on the planet on somebody else and hope that, you know, to re-question the whole value ch value chain and materiality. Um, uh, so to to help make it, uh, this consumption that we're going to see over the next few years of d household, household products and care for your mental health in your own home, which is ultimately which why we design nice spaces, um, Yes, I think it's going to be a very encouraging decade, really. I Just hope so. Yeah, I think, um, you know, people are getting smart about how to trade. Uh, 
Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's still, there's no balance yet. But, um, you know, we're opening our studio in Shenzhen soon. Um, we've started our own beer brand. Um, so, you know. Keeping busy. We've got to find new opportunities. And, you know, we've got friends over the border who can brew and they said let's do michael young beer and we said why not you know <laughs> why who, not indeed <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah why not <laughs> so um yeah we're just trying to be as optimistic as we can i have two more questions um first one is i'm curious to know how um the way that you and your team are working may have changed as a, as a result of what's going on because I know that you personally were travelling a lot um, and uh, is it Ben in your office that's... I think he's been down in Australia for quite a while. How is it, um, you know, is it, has there been an effect or are you guys all kind of just used to working remotely these days? Um, I guess I've been working remotely all my life, you know. I mean, I'm so used to just going into the office for an hour and then going to a cafe for lunch with my laptop and a sketchbook. Um, and, you know, even in the studio, we probably used Skype for so long and without even talking to each other. And um, so I don't really think it's changed too much, you know. We're all together now. Um, I think, you know, I worked from home for a couple of weeks uh, um, because, you know, we just had the new baby and I wanted to make sure his immune system was built up. So I was basically working from Repulse Bay because the 19-month-old was screaming all the time and I was just going mental, um, <laughs> trying to have a thought process going from the beginning to the end without going, like, what, was, what was I doing? You know? um, so that was quite hilarious. So, you know, I guess in retrospect, I look back at this as a time where I just worked from a cafe and a restaurant and... Um, end up spending a lot more than I should for my lunch. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, we're in the office working hard now. So I think it's created a better sense of teamwork, if anything, because mm. we all realise how fragile everything is. Yeah, I can imagine. And what about the, the no travel at the moment? Are you finding that a pleasant interlude or are you getting itchy feet to get away um to be honest with you it's made me revalue certain aspects of hong kong and how important they are um rather than focus on the things that i don't like about it search for the things that you do um i'm honestly i've been traveling for 30 years and i have no desire for a constant jet lag which i've lived with all my life um you know, I've never known really what time it is, you know. Um, so this is, makes me quite happy, actually. And I think it's good that because we don't know what's going to happen to travel. And I work for Steelcase in the USA and, you know, the manufacturer and a whole load of other companies we're doing projects for in New Zealand. We're, you know, launching a chair. So I think um, I'm quite happy that I might be able to, you know, do a little bit less travel. Mm. Um, I think the downside of it is that, you know, I used to work in Melbourne quite a lot where my eldest son lives and that's probably the saddest thing or where my parents are in the UK. Um, but I think um, putting family first will be the next sort of step and a lot of the large corporations and companies have found ways to manufacture, promote and sell and work with everyone being remote. 
Mm. Um, I think the only thing that is going to be a problem in the long term is that um, how do people build real trustful relationships and partners with people when everyone's on Zoom? You know, because millennials, I think they took everything for granted in a way because their parents were giving them things. But, you know, Generation Zs, I think, I think they'll figure it out because I think that whole Gen Z thing's very much more eco-warrior and... Um, well, you know, yeah. I, possibly. So that's what I'm hoping for. Mm, interesting. And aside from the Michael Young beer, is there anything else that's coming up that you're allowed to talk about that people can look forward to? Well, yes. The first one is um, Shenzhen Design Week. So we've redesigned that event. Um, we've done the, the visual identity. We've created the theme, which is more about um, readjusting the value chains about how design works. So we won't just be having designers there. We'll be having... Um, I'm going to get a lot of... Um, I can't confirm the speakers yet because it's all been organised, but um, we're trying to create what, shall we say, is a, a sort of revolution of an exhibition in, um, in Shenzhen where we get um, a lot of people from um, material specialists that are from Shanghai or New York. We'll get people from the fashion world. Um, we'll get investment companies there. We'll have uh, prototyping companies there. Um, so that is about readjusting the value chain of design and how everyone interacts and works together. So instead of trying to fight for the price is to fight for the correct opportunity. Um, whereas we're also creative directors of uh, Hebe Design Week. Um, now, that's really interesting because it's a different city. It's a future city. So um, not a lot of people know what the word pluversity is. Um, I've really just found out about just the what we have to do there is how when, when you build a new city, how is this manufacturing base? How can it em embrace and rebuild communities within a city? So, because this is a new city, and the the, the Beijing government are putting a lot of lot of money into the um, uh, infrastructure. So, we've been asked to create this event more as a. I, I always think see it more as something like I always loved the title of the Great Exhibition. Um, but you know, so whereas. Um, the Shenzhen Design Week I've called, uh, um, I've related it more to, you know, the death of Darwinism, really, because if we follow that natural process, what's <laughs> you know, it's just, whoa. <laughs> we can use technology to go, whoa, um, upwards. So, yeah, we're questioning how um, the, the sort of things you manufacture in a city like that impact what actually goes on. And I mean, as we've all noticed, since production's gone down in China, the skies have been cleaner, the sea's been greener, everything's been a bit more like, whoa, we can actually have an impact and every human's noticed that. So we're trying to question how that whole situation impacts because that area and uh, Langfang, the, obviously the government brought in new legislation for people to reach certain uh, you know, new criteria in environmental um, improvements. So this is a really a celebration of what all of these new factories can do together. So, Fantastic. Yeah. And when will they be happening? Um, Hebei is in September and Shenzhen is um, in uh, November. 
Fantastic. So we're finishing all of that work now. Okay. Yeah. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you. And I want to say thank you so much for coming in, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for the great interview. To, yeah, yeah, great to chat to you. Yeah, thanks and for you, your Susie. time. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.